Good evening, I'm Tom Bagwill and welcome to Greater New Orleans. He was the official photographer of Jazz Fest from 1970 to 2004, but as you're going to see tonight, his life and legacy goes much deeper than that. Tonight we'll look back at the life and life's work of Michael P. Smith with John Lawrence, Director of Museum Programs for the Historic New Orleans Collection. Great to have you back on Greater New Orleans. Pleasure to be here, Tom. Thank and you. And as always, John, we thank you and Priscilla and everyone at the Historic New Orleans Collection for your support of this program. We're glad to be a partner. Who was Michael P. Smith? Michael Smith was a New Orleanian. He was born in the city in 1937 and lived most of his life here. Uh, traveled fairly widely though in the course of pursuing his interests including uh, photographic jobs, but he was uh, a person who uh, at the bottom line loved New Orleans and used about 40 years of his life to uh, to document the city that he loved. He didn't grow up wanting to be a photographer I learned. At what point did, I think he wanted to be an English teacher at some point. What led him to photography? It was in the late 1960s when he was continuing his education at, at Tulane, having uh, finished at the Naval Academy, that um, uh, Michael was uh, hooked up with the um, uh, Hogan Jazz Archive and given some assignments to uh, create photographs that would enhance the materials that that uh, particular institution was building. And so it is through that, um, that means that he began photographing the work that we know today. He wasn't just a photographer, that is plain to see. So what was he? Well, it's hard to describe a person uh, simply who had so many interests, but um, uh, Michael considered himself uh, an urban folklorist. Uh, in fact, he began something called the New Orleans Urban Folklife Society. Some people thought he was a cultural anthropologist, certainly a very fine documentary photographer. He was a writer, um, both creative and um, uh, essayist, and he uh, just had a lot of different tags that could be assigned to his interest depending on what he was doing at the moment. What kind of photography equipment did he use? Mike uh, used the, um, uh, the basic equipment of, of a professional photographer of his era and for the, uh, the work that he was doing in the streets, um, fast moving subjects, fast moving action, a 35 millimeter single reflex camera, uh, sometimes uh, one brand, sometimes another. He had several. Um, and for studio work and other commercial assignments, he might use something that produced a larger negative where um, you could set it on a tripod and have the uh, more controlled situation of the studio. Tonight we're going to show people photographs from two exhibits, one at the Historic New Orleans Collection and the other at the Contemporary Arts Center. Were these exhibits that we're going to tell people about planned before his death? Because he fairly recently passed away. Yes, um, Mike passed away in September of 2008 and the exhibits were in the planning stage at that time. Um, the Contemporary Art Center had approached us about doing a show of, of Michael's Jazz Fest's pictures when we had just acquired the archive and it was not, uh, not in uh, really accessible enough condition to uh, plan a show like that. So we asked them uh, to work with us to um, do a joint exhibition the following year. And so that's how the current brace of exhibitions were put together. What role, if any, did he play in the curating of these exhibits? Because I know his health towards the end was, um, may not have been in a position really to help out. He was not um, in a 
position to material participate in the um, uh, in the selection of the pictures or in providing information. But his family, um, Karen Snyder, uh, his companion, uh, worked uh, worked with us. His daughter Leslie provided us with all kinds of information, and friends and other family members who knew information we were trying to find about the pictures or the circumstances of their creation really were very generous in their time and information. As our viewers are going to see, Michael P. Smith had a fascination with the African-American community. John, where do you think that fascination comes from? I think it, at the bottom it springs from, um, from Mike's just interests and inquisitive nature. Um, I have heard his daughter say that um, perhaps uh, some church outings with uh, the family's housekeeper, uh, where she took Mike to some of the church services that she attended, may have planted a seed of sorts. But um, Mike gravitated toward um, New Orleans music, of course, and but he was interested in uh, going beyond the music, as we say in the title of our exhibition, and um, coined the term cultural wetlands to talk about the New Orleans neighborhoods that really uh, fed into uh, the conditions that created this music. And so uh, he was um, uh, very interested in the spiritual churches that where music was played and performed. He was interested in social aid and pleasure club, clubs, the Mardi Gras Indian tribes, and of course the musicians themselves and the clubs where they played. His daughter Leslie and a close, very close friend of his in the Mardi Gras Indian circles, Larry Bannock, talks about the trust he built in the black community. Why was that important and how did he do it? Well, I think if um, it's important because it, it, in a very practical sense, it gives you access to things that people without that trust aren't going to have. Mm -hmm. And it, it develops an understanding um, uh, of, of the culture that you're recording. And I, I think that Michael was very deliberate, although these photographs often happened uh, in a technical sense in a split second. His understanding of, of the culture, the way that he approached these subjects, took weeks, months, or years to, to develop. And to, um, he, he wanted to understand. He just didn't want to come in there, make some pictures, leave, and go on to something else. Mm. We're going to show you just a few of the photographs now that you'll see at the Historic New Orleans Collection. The name of the exhibit, by the way, is Beyond the Music, as John just referred to. Let's begin with Bishop Lydia Guilford. This uh, first photograph was taken at the Infant Jesus of Prague Spiritual Church in the Seventh Ward, right? Yes, the um, uh, Infant Jesus of Prague Church was one of the places that Mike visited frequently, and uh, some wonderful photographs were made there. Uh, Bishop Guilford is on the right of this picture. We have yet to identify the person standing in the doorway of the bus, and if anybody uh, knows that, we'd appreciate that information. Um, it's part of his series that was published under the title Spirit World. We'll also let you know when these pictures were taken, just to give you an idea of the timeline of his work. This first photograph was 1977, the picture you just looked at. The next one is on the cover of the companion uh, catalog that goes with the exhibit in the Spirit. Uh, I believe this was taken in Central City in 1996, is that right? Yes, and it uh, shows the funeral of uh, Emil Victor Clay and uh, presumably the second line because the funeral procession itself would have been uh, a much more restrained affair. Uh, this, this sort of figure caught in mid-leap 
uh, as the uh, parade goes through this neighborhood of shotgun houses. Uh, one could hardly ask for a more New Orleans picture than that. An unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable photograph. Our next picture is the Second Line Jammers Social and Pleasure Club. By the way, that uh, the, f uh, the funeral uh, picture we just showed you was 1996, so yes. relatively recently. Uh, then we go back to 1987. What are we looking at next, John? The Second Line Jammers was uh, one of the numerous social and pleasure clubs or social aid and pleasure clubs that Mike photographed. And these were um, street parades uh, of members of an organization, um, often in very elaborate uh, matched costumes. And uh, it, it was just a way of, of uh, neighborhood bonding, if you will. The people in the neighborhoods looked forward to these parades. And Mike was very um, uh, concerned that the permitting processes for these parades um, uh, be uh, conducted in such a way that would allow these clubs who did not have immense financial resources to to be able to continue what was a very important neighborhood tradition and this is simply one of uh, many photographs that he took of the clubs. That photograph from 1987. Then we moved to 1996 and we talked about his fascination with the Mardi Gras Indians yes. and uh, our next photograph is of Bo Dallas. Yes, um, uh, Bo Dallas, the big chief of the Wild Magnolias um, shown on Mardi Gras day in his in his suit and uh, and hat and uh, again um, Mike not only photographed these people in in very engaging ways but um, was friends with them uh, and the wild magnolias uh, uh, I recall uh, they were present at his race street uh, studio um, at a, a celebration for um, I believe it was a poster release and there was an impromptu uh, concert by uh, by this group one of the strong things that I remember about uh, those days of the 1980s. In fact, at an event at the Historic New Orleans Collection about a week ago, his daughter Leslie, who you invited uh, there to to uh, speak, um, talked about uh, one childhood memory she had of, of, of marching along uh, with percussion instruments, her hands bleeding at the end of the day. Right. What such a wonderful experience it was. So he involved his family uh, in his work and his experience with the African American community. Yes, he did. Mm. This next picture could be seen in many parts of New Orleans, and it is one of my favorites as well. Guess what? There's a sale on North Rampart Street. <laughs> this is, a, I think, a fabulous picture. And it, um, it is, uh, I think a lot of photographers are drawn to words. The sort of mashing, mashing up of words in this photograph is, uh, is really something kind of wonderful. But it's also, it, it's also a document, certainly a sign of economic times uh, uh, from, the, uh, from 1972. Um, uh, there were sales then, there were sales now, and there'll be sales forever. <laughs> but um, if you uh, study this picture in the exhibition, you can, uh, you can get a sense, though, of, of how uh, it can be read as a social document, too, because you're, um, some of the signs say, fine lamps on sale or mm -hmm. new television sets. And so there is a, uh, an appeal to uh, potential customers' own vanity and self-standing in, in promoting these products. The only sign I don't see is going out of business, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and back, back open again soon. Uh, our next photograph is from 1990. John, what are we going to see? This is um, the Northside Skull and Bones Gang on Mardi Gras Day. This is a, um, perhaps not as well known to many Mardi Gras growers but it's a, um, a group that masks in the uh, tradition that you see in the picture. Uh, and, and this was in the uh, Treme neighborhood. These were the original bagheads before Buddy DiLiberto, is that right? <laughs> well, these, uh, he may have preceded 1990. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll take a look at the photographs from the Jazz Fest collection at the CAC in just a moment. John, we've all heard the term starving artist. How did Mike P. make a living? Mike Smith was um, a commercial photographer. The work that we have on view in our show um, uh, shows some of, um, some of that work. He was under contract to a, a publishing company called Black Star, which sent him on assignments uh, throughout the region. It could be to make a series of portraits of lawyers for an annual report. It could have been to, Oil rigs. to go out on the Gulf uh, in a helicopter to photograph a new rig being brought into production. And so these, um, uh, these assignments um, paid him uh, a salary and, and, and were the means by which he financed the work that he really wanted to do. Uh, after his, um, his uh, archive of music images built up. Sometimes there would be uh, compensation for the use of those on record covers or CD covers. But he was, um, he was uh, an, an assignment photographer, uh, both paid and a self-assignment photographer for the things that he really loved and used one to finance the other. He officially retired from the Jazz Fest gig in 2004, but certainly he was around when the digital revolution arrived. Did he jump on the bandwagon and embrace it or resist it? I think maybe as he um, began to be less capable because of his illness to make um, the photographs he'd always made, I think he may have owned a, uh, a point-and-shoot digital camera. But in terms of the work that we know him for, uh, the um, digital process was not um, was not part of his working method. One of the easy pieces with the digital is you just fire off a thousand photographs and hope you get the right one. Um, his daughter talk, talks about the time it took him to get the shots he wanted and because he was using film every snap counted. You're a photographer and I'm told a pretty good one at that. Did that patience make him better at his craft? It was uh, patience of course to wait for the moment but it was also um, also his understanding of when that moment was going to occur. Mm -hmm that um, uh, was the payoff as well. His, his knowledge of many of the, um, uh, of the situations he was photographing, whether it was a parade on the street, whether it was an Indian practice or uh, a second line funeral um, uh, procession, he, would, um, he, he knew when things were going to happen and, um, and, and took advantage of that. And probably because he had seen them before without a camera, because that's one of the things his friends and family talk about, is even before he would say, okay, let me come get the pictures, he would come to events and just attend them without his camera to really get to know the, the people and get to know the events. So like you said, he was familiar when it was time to get that perfect shot. That's true, and I think that was especially true in the spiritual churches. He was very deferential in approaching that community uh, uh, to um, before taking pictures. Down at your place, I met a family who had their wedding photographed by uh, Michael Smith, something he did uh, very infrequently, I should point out. Must have been a family favor. <laughs> We've all seen staged wedding pictures before, but this family told me the story that when he arrived, he said, just show me who the, you know, they were ready to do the posing. And he said, just show me who the family members are. I'll take care of the rest, right. which really said something about his ability to want to capture real moments rather than staged one. That doesn't surprise you, I'm sure. It doesn't, no. And, and actually, there's some correspondence with a couple, perhaps it was the same couple in the archive that talks about um, planning uh, the wedding photography. They were asking his advice on which bands they might use and uh, what locations, but also um, he, uh, he kind of laid out to them that his, uh, his method was, once the film was uh, 
was exposed. It belonged to the couple because they, um, they might want to look at things differently, and he did not want to be part of that continuing relationship between photographer and client in terms of the wedding, that that was very personal and that the couple should make those decisions about the pictures. Very different than from today, where the photographer sure. holds on to the pictures and says, when you need more, just <laughs> right. phone me up. Right. His daughter and friends also talk about him going to great lengths to get the right angle. Apparently, he had a, an affinity for car hopping and sign climbing. Tell me about that. Well, um, like, like many photographers, the, uh, the shot was everything for Mike. And um, uh, if, if standing on a car or maybe uh, scurrying up a, a light pole or a street sign would, would permit that angle, um, he was not above doing that. Of course, um, many of the things that he photographs and photographed in public were in the street, and so there were cars parked on either sides and other kind of, um, uh, I guess, assumable vantage points. And um, I think most of that was done without angering anyone who, who owned the car or uh, or might have otherwise been inconvenienced. But I'm told he could defend himself if he, if he needed to, right? Going back to his military career? Right, he was, um, uh, he was a um, naval champion in both wrestling and boxing, um, uh, according to the family, and um, I'm sure he, he could have taken care of himself if the situation demanded. I understand he hated the dark room. Now, half a photographer's work, good photographer, is in the dark room. Why do, why do you think he didn't like the care for the dark room? Well, I, I think, uh, and, and I'm projecting here, um, I, I think that if a photographer feels the shot has been made, then uh, the darkroom work is a, is a denouement. The, um, you know, the action has been recorded. And I think most photographers would much rather be out making new pictures than reliving the successes of older ones, although that's not the way things work. People want to see the pictures you made. People, clients have need to, uh, to have the film processed and printed. But um, it was, uh, I, I think for Michael, the creative process was, was in the field rather than in the darkroom. But in, 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 in photograph, today we just drop it off at the, you know, the, the, the drugstore and then you, we pick it up an hour later in some cases or, or two to three days later after that. But for professional photographers and those who take great pride in their work, the darkroom is is an, a very important part of, of the final product, is it not? Yes, and and Michael did um, did spend a lot of time in the darkroom. Uh, there ultimately became a demand for his black and white prints, and um, and his negatives were often not able to be printed just simply. Uh, straight. Um, they needed a lot of control work in the enlarging and developing process because sometimes the conditions under which he photographed were so extreme. And so to bring everything into balance, uh, he had to do his own chemical version of Photoshop to, uh, uh, to take care of, of problems that, um, that the field may have posed to him. I'm told he would not have been a big fan of Photoshop, that uh, he didn't really even like cropping, that when he took a picture, the picture he took was the picture that was going to end up in the frame. Is that right? That is correct. And um, you'll see, especially in the black and white pictures, there's a black border around, um, around the composition. And that reflects the clear edge of the film that has printed through and become black in the final print. It shows the entire contained moment within the frame. And for a lot of photojournalists uh, or people who worked in a documentary style, and for Michael, that was an especially important thing to show. Mm. There was cropping, but he did it. <laughs> he did it before he uh, pushed the shutter. In the camera. The next photographs by Michael P. Smith were taken at the Jazz and Heritage Festival between the years 1970 and 2004. And John will take us through those starting off in 1982.
Yes, uh, um, the iconic, I suppose, Chuck Berry um, in uh, the familiar duck walk, but uh, you often see that in profile, not head on. And, and this picture shows that black border that I was referring to earlier. The, um, I should say that in, in both our show and in the Contemporary Art Center show, um, uh, Jude Solomon and myself for our show and Dan Cameron for the Contemporary Art Center wanted to show pictures that were instantly identifiable as Mike's work, but not necessarily the same pictures that people were familiar with. And mm -hmm. so the, these selection of jazz festival pictures and, uh, and the ones in Beyond the Music as well uh, are, are um, pure Mike, but maybe uh, less familiar from a subject standpoint. Good for you for sharing the, uh, sharing the credit for the curating, something you always are, are quick to do. Uh, our next photograph is 1993. Well, again, um, Dr. John uh, Mac Rabinac, an icon of New Orleans rhythm and blues. Um, uh, Mike had wonderful access uh, by, being, by his association with the Jazz Festival. He could pretty much get anywhere he wanted to within the festival to, um, to take pictures. And I think after a while, the musicians accommodated that and understood it. Um, I, I think I've heard stories of Early, early on, that maybe they didn't quite understand what uh, what was going on. And to, you'd like to share, or, or one you'd like to share? No, not not in particular. <laughs> just uh, it was more of a general comment. I, I can't remember the names so much, but the um, uh, but he um, uh, in even in getting the shot and getting close to these musicians, he he. Mike could blend in seamlessly almost, and, and of course that's the, another mark of the pro is to be able to, to do that without, um, without upsetting your subject. That, that is a consistent theme, that he did not want to become part of the event, that he wanted to make sure that it was obscure as possible so he wasn't distracting from, from, the, from the real moment. It's a great point you bring up. Right. He, um, it, it's, it's almost impossible to remove yourself entirely, but, but as much as that is possible, I think Michael wanted to, um, to let the events or the people or the action unfolding in front of him be the primary subject, not him as the photographer. Mm. 1974 is our next photograph. Um, a wonderful um, view of uh, Lightning Hopkins. I, I particularly like these photographs made at the Jazz Festival where uh, you see the crowd, not only its density and, uh, and extent, but uh, picking out the individual expressions uh, that, um, that the crowd has in, in observing a certain musician. Uh, and this is a great one. Our next photograph uh, may not be uh, recognized by the real name of Henry Roland Byrd. Who was this? Uh, Professor Longhair. Professor um, Longhair. Uh, the, uh, I think for most people's money, um, uh, among the, the very top of New Orleans pianists of, of his era, and um, uh, a, a longtime friend of, uh, of Mike Smith's, and, and a person who, um, whose career Mike followed with, with great interest, and um, uh, a, a perhaps a more subdued um, Professor Longhair than we see in some of the other photographs that Mike did of this performer. Of course, Fess is, is long associated with Tipitina's, one of his songs, and, Correct. And, and there was a relationship between Mike and Tipitina's. Was he partly responsible for establishing it? Yes, when the club was first founded in 1977, I believe, um, as, a, as a nonprofit to continue uh, to provide a venue for 
for traditional New Orleans music. Um, Michael was one of the original founders and on the board of directors. It became, uh, it became the club it is today some years later, but still, I think, has a very strong mission to showcase uh, the music of this region. And the image of Fess is still atop at Tipitina's. Uh, Bonnie Raitt is the subject of our next photograph. Yes, um, uh, I, I, I can't say much more except another <laughs> fine example of. <laughs> there's and, Bonnie um, Raitt. <laughs> there's, uh, I, I think, uh, to me, this, um, uh, this picture has a, a sort of sweetness about it that you, you don't ordinarily associate with, um, uh, with the musicians at Jazz Festival. I mean, they're, they're they're working hard and um, uh, and they're they're usually pretty intense, but this one has a sweetness about it. And again, it. some crowd there in the background. And then yes. our final photograph from Jazz Fest, uh, taken in 1975. This is the Soul Queen of New Orleans. Gosh, Irma Thomas. I mean, she is um, uh, she is such a generous spirit in my mind. She she is everywhere. She seems to uh, to want to support everything, and it's 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 nice that she has been. Uh, at jazz festival throughout the years, and and again, I think seeing her with um, with these uh, dozens, hundreds, thousands of uh, adoring fans is is a great tribute to her as a, as an icon of New Orleans music and a living example of great things happen to great people, just not always right away. Right. In, in her case, it has taken a while for us to really appreciate, and That's the right. rest of the country, rest of the world, really, to appreciate Irma Thomas and her music. And boy, we do that now more than ever. Yes, mm -hmm. we, we certainly do. In 2004, we should point out that, uh, in fact, the year he retired, the Jazz Fest honored Michael P. Smith with a major grandstand e exhibition. What did Mike think, do you know, about the way Jazz Fest has evolved from where it started? And, and he was there in the early years. Yes, he was. And I... Um I talked to him about this many, many years ago, um, uh, and I, I think he felt that the the kind of shift from a pure jazz or local music to something that was more open and could embrace different forms of music and performers who um, uh, who were not always associated with the music of New Orleans, I think he felt that there was enough room for everybody. And um, I, I think the continuing of the event uh, was was the most important thing for him. I, I you know, I, I can't say this absolutely, but that that was my feeling in speaking to him about this. And um, and it's, uh, but but another thing that kind of ties in with that, Michael photographed New Orleans music for 40 years. It never remained the same. It was always changing. And so I think he thought that uh, the jazz festival was was just another aspect of of that change. Reflection and, of it. And tracked it right along. We've touched on this earlier, but one of his secrets is that he did take the time to get to know his subjects. He wanted to understand the culture before he documented it. Why was that important, do you think? Well, I think understanding a subject always gives you new insights into it. And um, part of uh, part of creativity is persistence and, um, and understanding. And I, I think Michael knew that. He, um, he knew that one picture or a thousand pictures wasn't going to um, embody any particular facet of New Orleans culture. And so um, the more that he could understand it, the better those pictures could be. And, and I, I just think it was part of his whole approach to uh, being a photographer, uh, an educator, and a learner. His photographs, all or almost all of them, are now in your possession. What happens to them after the exhibit? 
Well, um, uh, we do have the Michael P. Smith archive at the Historic New Orleans Collection, and um, that uh, these pictures, when when the exhibition comes down, will go back into um, their uh, their little house at the Williams <laughs> Research Center, where they are accessible to the public. We um, we are um, bringing this archive, which is not only a picture archive, but an archive of writings, of audio letters, tapes. audio tapes of ephemera related to New Orleans music. Um, we are bringing it online to and to public access as we process it and um, get it cataloged. But um, uh, they will they will be available for continued study at the research center following the show. Got about thirty seconds left, and as I show people uh, the cover of the companion book that goes with the exhibit, tell me how you think and hope Michael P. Smith will be remembered. I think Michael will be remembered as someone who just kept at it um, for as long as he could, and um, his persistence, his uh, desire to always learn more, and his. Um, being perhaps not initially, but ultimately a spokesman for um, parts of New Orleans culture that didn't always have people speaking out for them. And I, I think that's uh, Mike's legacy, his pictures, his writings, his dedication to preserving what he thought was special about New Orleans. Great points. The two exhibits, one Beyond the Music, now showing at the historic New Orleans collection through September 13th, and 25 Jazz Fest at the Contemporary Arts Center. That's through July 12th. We hope we've whetted your appetite and you will go see both of them. John Lawrence from the Historic New Orleans Collection. Again, our thanks. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Tom. All right. That is our program for tonight. We appreciate you and your support of our program and our station, LAE. And we'll see you next time on Greater New Orleans.